0: you're listening to the archive a collection of sermons and teachings from pastor mike and his peers from days past stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days We have more than a little bit of movement this morning, and I apologize for the miscommunication to you parents of older children. There is no children's church for the older children today because of Carolyn's absence and this being Mother's Day. I'm a Cardinal baseball fan. Some of you know that. Probably you're sick of knowing about my interest in sports. Uh, One of the most promising pitching prospects the Cardinals have ever had is named Rick Ankiel. He had a tremendous rookie season last year. In fact, he won more than 10 games his rookie season, had about a 3.5 ERA, which is good by any measurement of achievement in professional baseball. But when he got to the playoffs last year, he just lost it. He just went wild. He could not seem to find the strike zone. He was throwing the ball and it was going back. He threw more wild pitches in one inning than anyone had probably pitched in one game. He goes down the record books for that. He was just sent down by the Cardinals last week to Memphis AAA Redbirds. And you know, when you've been away from the pulpit one week, sometimes you feel like you may be a little wild. So if I throw you some high heat today, I hope you'll understand the reason for it. If I'm out of control today, if I just don't act like I normally act today, chalk it up to nerves. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the day, for the opportunity to be with our family in Christ, to worship you, Lord. You are our Father. We adore you, Lord. We thank you for being the kind of loving Father that you are. We thank you that there is a sense in which you carry a feminine side to you, too, Lord, like a mother bird takes care of her chicks in the nest. So that's the way you relate to us. So we thank you. For being this kind of father to us. Now we ask that your spirit would be our guide, our teacher, our illuminator. Teach us the truth, Lord, and set us free as we walk in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a man of color or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I'd like a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. These words of Wilbur Reese reflect... The kind of thinking which calls Jesus to issue a very strong call to Christian discipleship found in Luke chapter 14. So if you will turn there. I'm going to read verses 25 through 27 and then skip to verse 34. And these verses will serve as the basis for the message I'm sharing with you this morning. Verse 25 of Luke chapter 14 reads as follows. Now great multitudes were going along with him. May I make a statement, a fact about Jesus that may have escaped some of you. Jesus was never impressed with a crowd. In fact, what we're about to read is one of many sayings which are often overlooked in the Gospels of how Jesus almost told people not to follow him. And there's good reason for that. Let's go ahead and read verses 26, 27, and 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, verse 33. So, therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus has a passion for excellence. But it's not excellence for excellence's sake. You see, Jesus understands that if... There is not a type of excellence represented in those who follow him, then his mission will be aborted. That's why Jesus calls for quality control in those who follow him. Now, may I draw your attention to a refrain that is stated in each of these verses that we have read, which reflect the words of Jesus. Each one concludes with this statement He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Now, if you hope to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to understand what is being taught here today from God's Word. We need to ask the Spirit of the Lord to give us insight. Let me make note of the fact also... That the word that is most commonly used in the New Testament for a follower of Jesus is not the word Christian. It's not the word brother. It's not the word saint. In fact, the word Christian only appears three times in the entire New Testament. But the overwhelming word in the New Testament for a follower of Christ is the word disciple. Often we confuse the word of disciple with the word apostle. Now, the apostles were disciples. Disciples. But everyone who follows Jesus is called to discipleship. And we need to understand this. Can you imagine a company that does not exercise quality control in the operation of its business and its production of its product? What would happen to that company? Can you imagine a hospital or a medical school that did not exercise quality control? Now, as important as a hospital is, or as important as a medical school is, or several businesses are, what we need to understand is the enterprise that Jesus established for fulfilling the Great Commission is one which is even more important. We need to understand that when Christ calls us, he doesn't call us just to be saved from our sins. He calls us to be disciples, to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our zeal to add numbers to the church. And we are really impressed with numbers, I might say. And I use that term with myself right at the center of it. The more people we get, the better it makes those of us who are up front feel about our church. Do you understand that we make a big mistake when we appeal to people's self-interest rather than appeal to their sense of belonging to Jesus? We preach so fondly about Jesus being the Savior, and certainly He is. Praise God that He saves us from our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. But He is also our Lord. He is our ruler. And we must understand, if we're going to really follow Jesus and be all that He intends for us to be, we must acknowledge Him as our Lord and be His disciples. In the middle centuries of the time after Christ was born. There was an eastern potentate who was just sweeping all the way across toward the west, and he was unchecked in his progress. He defeated kingdom after kingdom. But the reputation of the prince or the king of the kingdom that was next in line had preceded him. His name was Abu Tabor. And this man had heard that Abu Tabor was a very valiant man. He was a young man. So he decided to spare his life and the lives of those in his kingdom by sending an envoy to him to sue for peace. The ambassador arrived into the camp of Abu Tabor. And the ambassador told him what his master had told him to tell him. Abu Tabor turned around and looked at a man standing near him. He said, come here. The man came here. Tabor pulled his own dagger out of his belt and he handed it to him. He said, plunge this into your breast without Thinking, the man stuck himself in the heart and fell over dead at the feet of his leader. He had another man off to his left. He called this man. He said, would you come here? He said, plunge yourself off that precipice into the Euphrates River. Instantly, the man, without hesitation, ran and jumped off the cliff to his death. Abu Taylor turned, Tabor turned, and looked coldly into the eyes of this ambassador. And he said, tell your master, I have 500 other men like them. And by this time tomorrow, your master will be eating with my dogs as a chained being. Guess what happened? His prophecy came true. It is quality that counts. Jesus understands this. Jesus is in no way limited by our lack of numbers. But he is limited by our lack of quality commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Arthur F. Burns Some of you know his name. He was economic advisor for presidents from Dwight Eisenhower all the way through President Reagan. You may remember his name. He was what Alan Greenspan is today. And Mr. Burns was Jewish also. At about this time in the 70s, a prayer meeting began spontaneously in the White House. It was arranged by committed Christians, disciples of Christ. And Mr. Burns showed up one day, and they didn't really know what to do with a Jewish man. They were very polite to him, but no one ever dared to call on him to pray because he didn't pray in Jesus' name. He didn't know Jesus. After all, he was Jewish. Well, a new person came into the group, and as was the custom in the group, whenever... Time came for prayer. One person had been designated to lead the group each week, and he would call upon someone else. Well, this man did not realize that Mr. Burns was Jewish, and he called on him to pray. Everybody just sort of gasped, wondering what was going to happen. And this is what Mr. Burns prayed. He said, Lord, may more Jews come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, may more Muslims come to know Jesus Christ. And Lord, may more Christians come to know know Jesus Christ. A sign on a t-shirt recently appeared here in our country, and it said, Jesus, save me from your followers. Now, hopefully, we are not a church that is characteristic of that kind of Christianity. But Bill Hull is right. This student of discipleship says, we're suffering in the American church from a crisis of product. What kind of people is this church producing? Are we producing the kind of people that are a danger to the world because we give a mixed message of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Or are we producing people who really are with the Lord all the way? Dallas Willard has said the greatest danger to the American church is to that of pitching our message too low. Jesus could never be blamed of pitching his message too low. Jesus throws high heat. He wants to be sure that we understand that to follow him is a costly thing in our lives. Now, there is a note of grace in this. This sounds like all law, and it's not an easy message to preach, and you're thinking, why in the world would the pastor preach this on Mother's Day? Well, I'll be real honest with you. I preached it last Sunday, and I took a vacation last week. I preached it where I was in Alabama last week, but I know it's an appropriate message. It's not only a timely message, it's a timeless message because Jesus is the one who has authored it. There is a note of grace here because of all creatures, the most miserable human being is the person who is half hearted in his or her commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't cheat, you can't lie. You can't steal with any degree of intensity if you are a person in whom Christ dwells and you're just trying to straddle the fence. I preached about that two weeks ago. What the Lord wants us to be able to do is to be fully committed to Him. And here's the lie of the devil. The lie of the devil says, if you give yourself fully to me, then you're going to live a life that's a real bummed out life. Well, that's just not the case, as we're going to see. What does this passage of Scripture teach us regarding The place that Jesus must occupy in our lives if we are going to be fully followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Christ. The first thing it teaches us is that we must put Jesus before our people, before our family members. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I want to be quick to note something before I begin to try to interpret this verse of Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, this is what Paul writes. He says, Everyone who does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. We are apostate if we don't take care of our family. Jesus would never call you or me not to love our family. In fact, he repeats one of the great commandments when he says, Honor your father and your mother. We've honored our mothers today. What Jesus is saying when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and he gives a succession of people whom he hates is, he's saying, If you do not love me more than any other human in your life, then you are not worthy To be my disciple. He says as much in Matthew, where he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So when Jesus says hate, what he really means is love less. The relationship I have in my life, the person whom I love the most, that love should look like hate in comparison to the love that I have for the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the obstacle? To our loving Jesus this way. Well, I have a sneaking suspicion it is something that some of us are more consumed with than others. It's a desire to please people. We want to please our mothers and our fathers and our spouses and our children and our siblings. We want to please these people. And we do everything we can many times in our power. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be pleasing to those whom we love. However, if that gets in the way of our putting Jesus first, it's a grave mistake. Remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1. He said, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Notice the use of the word still. There was a time when he was a people pleaser. He had an audience of thousands. And most of us would like that, an audience of thousands. But may I remind you that there's only one in our audience who really matters, an audience of one, the Lord. Remember this, we were called by Christ, to Christ, for Christ. Now, listen carefully. You and I were not called to something or somewhere mainly. We were called mainly to Jesus, to a person. And that pretty well determines everything else in our lives if we get that aspect correct. Who is the most important to you today? Who is he? Who is she? Is that human being more important to you than Jesus? If he or she is more important to you than the Lord, then what you need to do is reevaluate your so-called commitment to Christ. Here's another thing that we need to do. It really goes right along with what I've said already We need to put Jesus not only before our people, but before our own selves. Notice what he says here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. C.S. Lewis, the great Don of Oxford, wrote this. The more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, meaning God, Jesus, take us over, the more ourselves we truly become. The truth is, all of us are seeking to be who we want to be and who we think will bring fulfillment to our lives. But the matter is, God wants us to give ourselves to Him in such a way. And when that happens, we really become ourselves. We really do. It takes a long time to learn that. At this point, I would like to mention something else by another great writer, Oswald Chambers. Many of you are familiar with him. You've read his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest... And he says, beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor, listen, to devotion to Jesus is service for him. This is especially appropriate for a person like myself who has so-called given his life to the service of the Lord. And any disciple should have this mentality, giving ourselves to the Lord, giving ourselves to the Lord. Do you know that we can make, I've done this, make an idol out of our service to the Lord? It's so easy to be deceived by our own selfishness at this point. We need to understand that we need to be aware of the most ardent competitor for first place in our lives, namely ourselves. The Apostle Paul also wrote in the book of Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. He said there's death associated with following Jesus. Death to self. St. Patrick is a name that rings a bell for most of you. What you may not know about this great patron saint of Ireland is that he was a great evangelist. He brought the gospel across from Britain to Ireland, and many people were saved. He preached into his ancient years. He preached even when he was almost blind, and he had led a man to Christ, and everywhere he would preach, he took A stake with him that had a cross. It was made out of metal. The cross was at the top. And when he would get ready to preach, he would drive that stake down in the ground with what energy he had left. And then he would preach. And if anyone came to Christ, just like we saw J.J. get baptized today, then immediately he would find a body of water. In this particular setting, he had... Seen a man give his life to Christ. And he had someone help him down in the river because of his dim eyesight. But he carried in his hand this stake. And when he got to the place of baptism, he raised it up and thrust it down as hard as he could into the riverbed. And then he baptized the man. After he baptized the man, he removed the stake. And they both made their way up to the bank. One of his helpers said to St. Patrick, did you know that you drove that stake through the foot of the man whom you baptized? He said, no. He felt terrible. He was mortified like you. He gasped, no. And he turned to the man and he said, why didn't you tell me that I had driven the stake into your foot? And the reason the man on the bank knew it is because the water became red with the man's blood. And this is the response of the man. He said, I thought that was part of being baptized. May I tell you, When you really understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to die to your own selfishness. This is a picture out of history that gives us that insight. Now, we have a lot of younger people in here today because of Children's Church. And I have a story for you kids, and I want you to listen really carefully, especially. It applies to all of us, but this is a great story. It's told by Donald Barnhouse in his book on the Gospel of John. He tells the story of a young girl who heard her doorbell ring, and she went and answered the door. And when the door opened, there was a man there who had a box in his arms. It looked like a flower box, and he handed it to her, and she said thank you and shut the door. She could hardly wait to get into the kitchen to open the flowers. When she opened the box, there were flowers there, but to her dismay, the flowers were all wilted. And she thought to herself as she read the card, it had been sent by her youth leader saying that these flowers had reminded her of this girl named Mary. Well, Mary was confused. She began to reason. She said, maybe my youth leader got these flowers to this man several days ago and he just forgot about it. He's just now delivering them. So the next day, she made a, ha- a deliberate attempt to see her youth leader, and she said to her, thank you for sending the flowers to me yesterday. She emphasized the word yesterday in hopes that she would get a clue. And the lady said, oh, yes, several days ago I was in my garden, and I saw these beautiful roses, and they reminded me of you, Mary. They were so beautiful that I cut them, and I got my most exquisite vase, and I filled it with water. Then I put the flowers down in the vase, and I enjoyed them in my bedroom for several days until they began to wilt and the petals began to fall off. And then I boxed them up and sent them by my helper to you yesterday. And Mary said, but I don't understand. She said, well, let me tell you, Mary, several nights ago, my husband and I went into town and he went into the store to pick something up for us. While he was in there, I remained in the car. And there were some young girls who came and stood right outside the car. And one of the girls said, I would go with you girls tonight to the church to hear the special speaker for youth, but I'm not quite ready to give myself to Jesus. Someday I will, but while I'm young, I want to have a good time in my life. Mary said, why, I said that, but I didn't know you were in the car and heard it. Her youth leader said to her, yes, I heard it. And I thought to myself, there's Mary, just like a bunch of beautiful roses, And she's saying, Lord, here is the blossom of my life. It smells so good and is so beautiful. I wish to enjoy it for myself. In a little while, when the beauty of it is gone, then I'll give you what's left. But until then, I want to live it for myself. Those of you who are young, especially, listen carefully. The prime time to become a disciple of Jesus is when you're young Don't wait till you're old like me, and a lot of your life is wasted. Do it now, because you were created for that purpose. You may not be able to believe that, but it is true. Understand that God has a special plan for you, but in order for you to get in on that plan, you have to make Jesus Christ first in your life. Are you giving Jesus the leftovers of your life, young people, today? Are you? Adults, are you giving Jesus what's left in your life? Now, let's look at the third thing that's necessary if we're going to put Jesus in his proper place in our lives and be his disciples. We must put him before our people, our family. We must put him before ourselves. We must also put him before our plans. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, a man who was going to be crucified had no plans of his own. Nobody that we know of ever went to the cross and survived. Nobody. Josephus, the Jewish historian who was a contemporary of Christ, said he knew of two men who were taken down off the cross while they were alive, but they died later. So a person who is being crucified has no plans of his own. What is Jesus saying when he's saying we're to take up our cross and we're to follow him? What he's saying is we're to give our plans to the Lord. Now, let me remind you of something that I preached about about five or six weeks ago from Jeremiah chapter 29, so that you will understand that the plans of the Lord are good plans. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So what kind of plans has God made for you and me? Good plans, not bad plans. What are plans but a way of executing a life? And what is life but time? May I give you a good verse to begin every day with? When you wake up in the morning, pray this prayer from the Psalms to the Lord. Teach me, O Lord, to number my days. Teach me to number my days. None of us knows how many days we have left, no matter how young or how old we are. So teach us, Lord, to number our days. Proverbs sixteen three says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. God has a plan for our lives. It's a good plan. It's a plan which includes saying no to ourselves in order that we may say yes to Him. But it's an outstanding plan, and He wants us to put Him first in our plans. How do you use your time in your life? Not the time that you work, although that's important. You know, Jesus wants to be in your life, and move through your life in your workplace probably as much as any other place, because you spend the majority of your waking hours at work. He needs disciples where you work. He needs a presence where you work. But what about your leisure time, your discretionary time? How do you spend that? Do you spend that time in such a way that enables you to represent Christ well? Put Jesus first in your plans. James tells of a group of Merchants who are hovering around a map of the Mediterranean world, and they're saying next month we're going here, and then the next year we're going here, and after we do good there, we're going there. There's nothing wrong with making business plans, but there is something gravely wrong with making plans and not including the Lord in the making of the plans and giving Him the option to give us new direction right in the middle of the execution of our plans. I hope you understand that. Now, let's consider the last thing that Jesus teaches here. Look at verse 33. So, therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So, we must put Jesus also before our possessions. Here again, I'd like to remind you of something positive before we look at this negative command. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God has given us everything richly for our enjoyment. Anything you and I have that's stuff, material things, all that's been given to us for our enjoyment. And probably the greatest enjoyment we will ever get out of the things which we possess is by sharing them, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, with other people. So there's nothing wrong with having possessions and nice things. I hope you understand that. But what is wrong is when we think of them as belonging to us, when in reality everything we have belongs to Jesus If we are Jesus' disciples, remember what he says. He says, what, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Who bought our salvation, our redemption? Jesus did. Therefore, if we are following Jesus, then our possessions really don't belong to us. Here's the way the Lord wants us to relate to things, to our stuff. He wants us not to hold our stuff with a clenched fist. But with an open hand. And say, Lord, whatever I have in terms of material things belong to you. We know, I know it belongs to you, Lord. And so you do with it whatever you wish to do with it. What's your most prized possession? What is it? I have no idea of knowing what yours is. I know what mine is. But what about yours? Does it really belong to Jesus? Or do you reserve the right to do whatever you want to with your stuff? You're not a disciple of Christ in the best sense of the term until you realize that you have to put Jesus before your possessions as well as before your plans and yourself and the people in your life. The ancient church talked about three kinds of martyrdom. Red martyrdom, which meant by shedding your blood. White martyrdom, green martyrdom rather, which means Following Christ through abstinence, by not, by not eating all the time, not by fasting and these kinds of things. But then there was a third kind of martyrdom. It's white martyrdom. And the idea of that is denying yourself, saying no to yourself in order that you may say yes to the Lord. So many other things that could be said and said much better than I've said them. But I want to finish this morning. By reminding you of Jesus calling a couple of guys to be his disciples, their names were James and John. They were fishermen. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as he walked along, he saw James and John fishing with their father Zebedee and the hired servants who helped with the fishing business. And the Bible says, without delay, he called them and they dropped everything. They dropped everything and left Zebedee, their father, in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. Now think what was involved in their discipleship. They left their father, they left their business, and it was a booming business. Only people who were doing well had hired servants, and they followed Jesus. Do you remember what Jay read earlier today from Mark chapter 10? Where, after Jesus had given one of these real hard teachings, he says it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And do you remember what Peter said? He said, We've left everything and followed you. Now, what did Jesus say in response? Anyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or farms, for my sake in the gospel, that person will receive much more. In fact, a hundred times more. That teaching, by the way, has been perverted by many teachers, even in this city, who say, if you'll just follow Christ, you're going to get a hundredfold of everything that you give up to follow Christ. That's not what Jesus was talking about, because he goes on to say, these teachers never preach out of Mark's rendition of it. They always go to Matthew or Luke. It says, along with it, Persecutions. But how is it that when I become a disciple of Jesus Christ and follow Jesus with this kind of devotion, how is it that I get access to all these other things? It's because I become a part of a family. And I've experienced this, I cannot tell you how many times in my life. At the grace of many present here today, I have been able to enjoy homes and I've been able to enjoy relationships that I never would have enjoyed were I not a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus concludes what he said to Peter and the disciples by saying, and also eternal life, the greatest of all possessions. May I remind you that unless you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot have eternal life. I hope you understand that. And eternal life is the greatest possession imaginable. Remember what Jesus said. He said, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels shall save it what was jesus saying he's saying let go jim elliott said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose you can't keep your life eventually it's going to be gone but if you give it up to christ now in this life i guarantee you eternity is going to be wonderful not to mention this life in itself is going to be much more enhanced as a result of that when the archaeologists broke into the tomb of Charlemagne, the great emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, what they discovered was his skeleton seated on the throne. He was dressed in beautiful robes, a crown on the skeleton of what was his head, and a book was opened in his lap, and his bony index finger was pointed to a particular place on the book. And the book was the New Testament, and the place was the eighth chapter of Mark. And the words were these words. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is in essence saying our lives, if they were based on a scale, in one life, your soul, one place on that scale, and all the wealth on the other side, guess which direction the scale would tip? It would always tip in the direction of your soul. Do you know that your soul is worth more to God than all the riches in the world? And certainly if it's worth that to God, it's worth that to you. And mine is to me. So what we need to understand is that you can't be satisfied with $3 worth of God. You can't have a little bit of God. You've got to have all of God. God doesn't come in installments. He comes in one piece. He's not fragmented. But in order for you and me to have all of God, now listen carefully, God must have all of us. Do you want God? Do you want what only He can give in terms of giving you peace in your life? Then you need to give Him your life today. Put Him first above all people and above all plans and above all things. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask You now to continue to work in our hearts. Lord, we want to put you first. Give us the strength and the courage to do just that. And I'm asking that everybody have bowed head and closed eyes out of respect for those around you and out of respect for the Lord. Let me ask you, is there someone here today, maybe one person here today, maybe it's you today, who senses that the Lord is saying to you, you have not put me first, and you're sensing that you want to put Jesus Christ first. You're afraid to, maybe, but you know in your heart you want to put him first. If that's true of you, would you just slip your hand up very quickly, quietly, and put it back down. Yes, the Lord sees. Yes. Put your hand back down. Thank you. The Lord sees. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. Thank you. All right. Very good. Anyone else? Okay. Let me pray for you now. You can pray along with me. This is my prayer, too. Dear Lord, please forgive me for putting other people and other things and my own plans before you. Jesus, I want to put you first. Help me to be your disciple, Lord. Help me to love you more than anyone or anything else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.